turn to Psalm 15. Psalm 15. We're actually studying John, but we always start with a psalm or something like it. Psalm 15. Whoever gets there first, go ahead and read out. The Psalm of David. O Lord, you shall sojourn in your tent. You shall dwell in your holy hill. He departs blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. And who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. And he who does these things shall never be moved. Amen. So, this is a, a description of what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. So the question is, who may, who may abide in your tent or your tabernacle? Is the, the question that's, that's asked. Who may dwell on your holy hill? And then there's uh, a list of what it looks like in answering that question. What does it look like if you were to actually dwell with God in his, in his house? Um, to actually uh, make your, your life with him. Well, it starts with integrity. Does anybody know what integrity is? Doing the right thing when no one's looking. Doing the right thing even when no one's looking. Doing the right thing even when no one's looking. Yep. So integrity means that there's uh, you're the same on the outside as you are on the inside. And that means that in you is no deceit. We're going to we're going to read about a guy this morning who had integrity. In him was no deceit. No, Jacob would be the, the way of saying it. In Hebrew. Um, so it starts with integrity, and then it, it's a life that works righteousness and speaks truth, both inwardly and outwardly. That's that idea of integrity. It's the same on the outside as you are on the inside, that what you speak is that which is what's in your heart, and that's centered in the truth. And then it, it looks outwardly. It doesn't slander, doesn't do evil your neighbor, doesn't take up reproach against a friend, and yet makes a, a, a judgment, uh, not a judgment in condemning, but a judgment in discernment about those who were not walking that way, in whose eyes a retrograde is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt does not change. In other words, he's a promise keeper. Right? So we, we see programs of discipleship that are intended to build people into this kind of character um, in our Christian culture. Um, he does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. In other words, you see a generosity and a hospitality that's displayed there. He who does these things will never be shaken. So in uh, you're actually driving here because I actually was going to go a different direction this morning as far as introductory material. Because what we're looking at at the beginning of John is uh, the beginning of discipleship, what it means to actually follow Jesus, to know him, um, to believe uh, in who he is and what he says, and then to abide in him or remain in him, uh, to follow him. And so I thought, well, I, I was going to go to Isaiah, and I was going to start in Isaiah, but Karen and I were driving in, and, and uh, I said, so just Google Psalms of Discipleship, and that's, this psalm came up, and as soon as she read it, it's like, yep, yeah, that's it. That's, this is the kind of focus that we want to have in our life. This is what we're trying, I believe, if you're here this morning, you're here um, despite your pillow talking to you, saying that sleep is good, um, despite uh, maybe uh, breakfast out at Denny's or, um, you know, Jerry's down the street. So you're here because you're, I, I'm making an assumption, that you're here because you want to learn more about who Christ is and deepen your relationship and walk with him, that you're a disciple. Now that may 
may be naivety on my part, but I, that's what I believe about you guys. <coughs> I believe in that. So, <laughs> I'm going to honor those who fear the Lord. Right, that's what this psalm says. Um, when I was looking in preparation uh, this morning about uh, this passage, and I've, I've been through this passage in, verse, in uh, John chapter 1 a lot, um, mainly because when I uh, was going through seminary, uh, I, I took what they call expositional ministry track. And expositional ministry means I was language intensive, I was learning original language, I was doing exegetical work in that original language. And in the New Testament, you usually start with John, the writings of John, when you're learning Greek. And the reason why is because John was a simple fisherman. And his Greek, although very um, substantial in theology, the content of what he has to say is incredibly meaty. The way that he expresses it is pretty simple. Right? So you usually start with John. And so I, um, as part of my exposition, exposition work, um, expository work, uh, went all th through all of the works of John, all the letters of John, Revelation, um, the Gospel of John in original language, and part of exegetical work is that you want to not just understand it yourself and apply it to your own life, but you want to teach others, right? So um, part of what I did in my preparation in seminary was I spent a lot of time in John, and I also spent time in Luke and Paul and, and other uh, Hebrews, um, some of the more complex Greek. And then in the Hebrews what, or as well, I did similar type studies. But that was, that's why I spent so much time with John. So I, I love the Gospel of John because it's so deep. And I spent a lot of time here and I was sitting here thinking, well, how can I help present to you what the basic message of John is? Right? So the basic message of John is to know, believe, and remain. And John um, wants to take us through knowing who Christ is, that who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that knowing Him and believing that truth about Him, you can have eternal life in Him. That means you need to remain in Him. And so what you're going to see is that John uh, explicitly puts together this gospel with that goal in mind. And uh, the way that I came up with a, an outline that expresses that was what was on the screen here a second ago. That it starts out, uh, there's a prologue and an epilogue, um, and they were, that means a prologue. These were added after the main text uh, of John, um, and they were specifically to address issues of the day and uh, so the prologue is to address issues about the divinity of Jesus the Christ and the epilogue was to give a message of hope to those that are asked to, to walk long right? when I say walk long I mean that you'll have a life of walking with Christ and maybe not see him until you pass from this world and see him face to face in other words um, he may not come in your lifetime, but you're called to a, a life of discipleship in, uh, in the midst of challenge and suffering, because that's the state of the world today. Right? So how do, you, how do you walk with Christ? And that's what the epilogue, uh, specific message to disciples is about. It's a message of hope, a message of remaining. And the, the, the meat of John is broken into two sections. Uh, what you'll see is what I call miracles and ministry. Uh, the miracles is the uh, seven signs or the public uh, demonstration, uh, the demonstration to the world, the exposition to the world of Christ showing us the heart of the Father and how the heart of the Father is expressed towards humanity in the Son. And that... Um, God actually became flesh and sojourned with us. So he, didn't, he made the first step. He reached out to us to bring us to him. And that he does this publicly, and this is all about getting to know him. And then there's a private ministry 
of Jesus too. That those that um, have come to know him and embraced him in belief, he wants them to uh, be as a friend. Right? So if you look at, at John chapter 15, and Jesus says there is no greater love that a person can have than to lay down his life for another. Right? And he invites them into a relationship um, which he characterizes as friend. And it isn't the same kind of idea of friend that we have in this culture, and when we get to that we'll unpack it a little bit more. But it has to do with having intimacy and relationship. And that that's what that remain means, and he unpacks that for us, what it means to remain, to abide in the vine, um, to have the place of friendship with God. Um, and then finally, we have the witness to the world of uh, the suffering and glory of Christ, his death and resurrection, which we're going to celebrate here in just a matter of a few weeks at Easter, and that we're going to recognize the entrance of the king into the world publicly as he came down the Mount, um, Mount of Olives, was presented as the king, uh, not just the king of the Jews, but the king of all creation. And that he entered the temple, he uh, spoke truth. Just as we read what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ, that was first put forward in his own behavior. A man of integrity, a man of truth. Um, and that he presented the love of God to the point of being beaten and crucified for us. And if there was some other way, it would have happened that other way. Because this is the most extreme uh, that a man could go through to bring man and God together was the crucifixion. And that the triumph over death is demonstrated in, in Christ's resurrection. So that's what you see in John. That's the structure. And what we're looking at in John chapter 1 is that uh, the first introduction that we're going to see to what discipleship looks like. So I'm sitting there reading about discipleship and... Uh, as, as uh, Daniel was sharing that song with us, uh, I recognized that there's a kind of discipleship that doesn't have uh, much um, theological or, or truth understanding behind it. There's a true, genuine love of God, but there's a dearth of, of uh, substance in that other than the emotion part of the love of God. And as I was reading through um, one of the professors at Wheaton College, they did a, a test of incoming uh, students. So these were uh, freshmen coming in to a college-level uh, Bible curriculum. And they come from godly families. So many times churches are putting forth their best. They're saying, these, this is our, our young that we want to put forward for a Christian ministry. And we will stand behind them in education. So some of these are funded by their churches. Um, and they're being presented. And they give them a test coming in. They give them a simple test. Who came first? Abraham or Moses? Who came first? Abraham or Moses? Abraham. Abraham. You'd be surprised the number of students coming in said Moses. Right? If I gave you a, a list of five books in the Bible, could you put them in chronological order? Or at least in canonical order? I'm going to say chronological. That's a little bit more complex. So, if I gave you the books Exodus... Ruth, Psalms, John, and Galatians. Could you put them in order? Of course, I just gave them. <laughs> 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 so they, they, they gave them this task to make something they didn't quite get it that easy. But even if they would have, a lot of these students couldn't get it right. And yet they loved the Lord with all their heart. They didn't know the foundations of their faith. They didn't know they, they didn't know who Luther was, right, and what he had to say. They didn't know who Wycliffe was and what he had to say. They didn't know who um, Jerome was and some of these others that were incredible, important people in the faith of the church and what they had to contribute to us understanding who Christ is, executing the scripture. And so they, they said, well, we need to give these guys some, some basic theology. So that's what we're about this morning. Because discipleship means more than just 
saying that you love the Lord. It means that you've actually dug into his word to see what he has to say about himself. Yes, sir. So, <clears throat> discipleship, I believe, has to be both things. So, the, the right brain and the left brain, if right. you will, you know, okay? Yes. So, some of us are very <clears throat> logical and blah, 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 and can learn facts and figures and things really well. You know, and yet, maybe there's no passion. Right. Okay, to be a real disciple of Jesus, I believe you have to have both those things. Right. And it's interesting how, in my experience at least, different churches specialize in different things. Some specialize in the emotion. <laughs> yeah. And maybe there's not a lot of content. Right. You know, and then some specialize in content, and it's really, um, I want to say, liturgical. You know, and right. and and seem, seems to me very. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> you know, but really, it's both of those things, and I've right. been able to appreciate some of the things that the different churches kind of do well. Um, but really, it's not never an excuse for <laughs> learning the scriptures. You right. know what I mean? Right. So. Um, and, and that's that's what we want to do. We want to create a balance. But, okay, given all this, we're yeah. talking about it, and in chapter 1, I do have a question about Okay. This. Because Nathaniel, okay, yes. who, and, and who no God. Philip found, you know, and and Jesus himself says to him, you know, here's a man, what is it here? Yep. Da, 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 da. A man in, uh, in whom is no Jacob. No guile, yeah. Yes. Said of him, behold, Israelite, Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Okay, now this is a high compliment. That's incredible compliment. Really? He says, you're okay. commanded to test And so Nathaniel answers, says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God and the King of Israel. Now, I don't know how you made that leap, but I liked your, your write-up sermon about it. Um, you know, so, and yet Nathaniel's not one of the twelve. Um, well, actually, he might be. What? <laughs> There's a guy named Bartholomew who uh, might be Nathaniel. Oh. All right. Well, so he might have been one of the 12. Okay. But we well, don't know one of the 12 by name of Nathaniel. Yeah, right. right. That's what so it's kind of like, um, and, and the names that people are given are significant. Right? And we're going to see there's actually a renaming of Peter here. Because God sees something that we don't see. Um, he saw something that we don't see when he created us. Um, he, he sees stuff that we don't see. And that's what Nathaniel saw. He saw that, wow, here's a guy who sees something that nobody could see but God. Um, now, was, and we'll talk about that. Was Nathaniel proud in uh, recognizing that? Like, ooh, God noticed my integrity. Uh, or was he recognizing that, wow, only God could see into my heart and recognize that um, that it, in fact, is the desire of my heart, is to be a person in whom there's no deceit. And Jesus uses this play on word. Here is an Israelite in whom is no Israel, in whom is no Jacob. Uh, so, because you don't capture that in the Greek, but you definitely capture it in Aramaic and the original language, right? Um, so Jesus is using a play on word, and he's, he's almost toying with Nathaniel to draw him out. And that's one of the things that Jesus does here. So let's read this account. And uh, we'll, last week I talked about John the Baptist, and we'll uh, pick up any questions we had on John the Baptist. But then let's, let's take a look at the subsequent days. This is a seven-day account of what's going on here uh, in ministry. Let's look at the subsequent days. So I'll start out in verse 19. Says, this is the testimony of John, that's John the Baptist, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Well, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, 
Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. But these things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. That's the first day. The Jews come to John, and they want to know uh, what witness that John is giving. Who's the prophet? So, uh, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 18, in verse 15, Moses said there would be one like him that would come after. So, like him being among the people. So he would come from the Jewish nation. So let's take a look at, at Deuteronomy 18. So I think I unpacked this last week, but maybe not. I don't recall. You know, sometimes we get on rabbit trails, and, and Tim keeps me on track here. But, uh, so if you look at 18, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses is speaking to the people and he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. So Moses was a priest and he was also a prophet. Right? So he was from the, the line of uh, the priest. He was a Levite. And uh, his brother, Aaron, became the high priest and served in the tabernacle um, when they came out of captivity and the cultic practice of the Jews was set up. That came through Moses' family line, right? Because he was a priest. But he also was functioning as a prophet. So when he gave the declaration of God's righteousness to the people, the Ten Commandments, that was a prophetic voice. Which is why we take that and we call them commandments, right? It's God... Uh, revealing himself to us. And in that revelation is a requirement. Because when God declares his righteousness, it all of a sudden puts us in a position of, um, of obligation. That we have to either choose to uh, be righteous as God is righteous, or choose re continued rebellion against God. So that's why the Ten Commandments are so pointed. It's like the point of a spear. It jabs you and it convicts you because it causes that sense of obligation to rise within you. But it's a prophetic voice. It's declarative. It's describing who God is. So Moses had that role of a prophet and a priest. And he was the leader of the people. So in that role of administration, as God is emerging an administration for his people in his kingdom on earth, there would be one who would rise as a leader. And we would understand that leader later as you go through the, the, um, the revelation of the Old Testament as it's marching toward the rest of the revelation of the New Testament in Christ. Um, you see that that emerges as a king. We, we saw that when we got to Samuel. right? That God's intention is, is that his people will have his um, authority ruling them. And that that authority, until Christ comes, is a delegate king. Moses served as a delegate king. So in that sense, Moses is a type of Christ, which is why he's such a significant figure. And he actually shows up in the transfiguration on the, on the mount. Um, he shows up as a priestly character. So you see the prophet, the priest, and the king on the mountain of transfiguration. And Peter and Andrew observed this time. Stepping out of time, this is kind of a rabbit trail. We're going to get to it because John was there. And he actually saw Christ transformed into his glory as the eternal king. And with him were Moses and Elijah. And when Peter saw this with uh, John and James, Peter said, wow, we need to build a tabernacle right here. We need to build an altar. We need to worship God. And that was a true statement. We needed to worship God. But the voice that came to him was, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Pay attention. This is the one who, who captures all of God's heart for humanity. Daniel. Uh, back out of the rabbit trail, at the part where it says, how, uh, or John the Baptist says, 
there comes one after me who is greater than me. Yes. He's very um, specific about that, and that's in all the all the gospels. Yeah. Um, and so, is, and is, do you think that his birth being six months before Jesus has? Um, do you think that that is why it's significant? Because obviously, if you look yeah. They're, 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 well, their birth, he was born before yeah. Jesus. So how can you say he came after him? And so. So the, the, I'll tie the two questions together. One was about who was the prophet. We all understand who Elijah was. He was the one that went up in the fiery chariot and, uh, and didn't die. At least didn't see him die. Elisha wanted to watch until he was received to God. Um, and so that's the story in the Old Testament. There's the prophet I just told you about. So John the Baptist is saying, no, I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I'm not the Christ. Right? So who... Who is he? He says, um, I am the one who is telling you, pointing the way to the Christ. I am the voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. And then uh, he says, there is one among you, already present in the world, whose, uh, the thong of whose sandal I cannot, I'm not even worthy to un- unlatch. So what, is, what does that mean? He says, one that um, comes after me was before me. Right? That's what he says here. He says, it is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Right? But then he goes on, and he, in verse 30, he says, uh, this is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man uh, who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Right? So he's giving us this this paradox. One who comes after him, but is before him. One who, um, if you look at John and where he came from, he was a righteous dude. Right? He was an Essene, most likely. Um, he had dedicated his life to the Lord. He, he was a man of integrity, you know, as we just read about. So he was a, a disciple of God himself, God the Father, um, and looking for the Christ. And he recognized, I'm not the prophet, not the Elijah. Um, I'm here to just get people ready for the Christ. And yet he, he knew that because of Revelation that the Christ was already in the world. And that that's Christ was born after him. So we know that in fact they're related. Right? John the Baptist was born before Jesus by a few months. And yet um, when he says this one existed before me, he's acknowledging the eternality of Christ. The eternal nature. And that's why in John, in his prologue, um, he gives that whole, uh, the very first phrase, in the first verse, it says, in the beginning was the word. That he's using a past tense, saying that the word was already there when the beginning happened. Right, so that's, an, that's a statement of eternality. He's saying this one who is the Word, and the Word became flesh, ultimately, and we understand that as Christ and Jesus. Um, he's eternal. John the Baptist is acknowledging the same thing. And when he says, I'm not worthy to unlatch his sandal, I'm not will, un, worthy to untie his shoe, um, he's saying that he is less than a slave. Because a slave could untie your shoe and take it off, right? That's what slaves did. You come into the house, and you stand there, and your slave comes up, and he, you know, props up your foot on the stool, and he takes off your, your shoes, right? And then there's the basin of water there, and he washes your feet. Because when you come into the house, you're coming into a sacred place. Your own home, as well as the home of God, Right? And that's what a slave would do. A slave would make that, um, that practice of uh, keeping the sacred. And he wasn't even worthy of doing that. That's what John's saying. Is John the Baptist a Nazarite? Uh, probably he had taken a Nazarite vow. And uh, so a lot of the Essenes did. Mm-hmm. Um, which means that they're pretty scary guys. Right? So you read about him, he's eating locusts and honey and he's wearing a you know, camel tunic with the fur turned out. And uh, he's got uh, 
I can just imagine long hair. And this guy, when he comes at you and he says, Repent! Yeah, you know, he's pretty scary. So yeah, he probably had that kind of dedication to the Lord. And when he's talking repentance, actually I don't know that he ever shouted ever in his life. He was probably a very gentle man, but he spoke the truth. Um, and we, we know that from other descriptions of John. Um, and we think that we need to speak loud in order to get the message across. A lot of times that's not the case. Before we move on, I know you're kind of a geology guy, and in mm-hmm. this last verse it talks about it's taking place in Bethany. Yes. Isn't that where uh, Lazarus and Noah were from, too? And yeah, isn't that really this, close is, to this is one of those problems. And then they go up, then they go from there to Galilee. Yeah. North, so. so this is one of those problems. So I'm going to zoom in here in a minute. So we've got Israel, right? From Dan to Beersheba down here. That's what we understand is the proper tromping grounds of Israel. They went beyond that at one point in the kingdom. So I'm going to make the statement that John was right here. And this is Jerusalem. I'm going to zoom in in a minute. Um, Bethany is over here, near Jerusalem. John was down here by the Jordan River. Let's zoom in a little bit. I don't know that Bethany will show up in here. It might. We'll see. I've got, uh, nope, it's not, but you'll be able to see Jerusalem clearly. <coughs> so John must have been in Bethany for this. Pardon? John must have been up the hill. So this is this is a, a big zoom here. And you probably can't read it out. <laughs> right here it says Bethany. Right here. So it says Mount of Olives, Bethany, Jerusalem. And Kidron uh, separates the two. So... Geographically, what it is is that um, you would come in uh, uh, on the, this uh, ascent of uh, I I believe is the name of this ascent. So you would take this ridge route into Jerusalem, and you would come across uh, the Mount of Olives down through the Kidron Valley and into Jerusalem, and that would be the way that you would go from Jericho to Jerusalem. And we read about this in chapter 16. Jesus is down here in Jericho. And um, uh, Lazarus is laying dying in Bethany. And it's about a 20 mile journey by foot. You can make it in the day. Straight uphill. Straight uphill, yeah. You're coming. Yeah, this is uh, 800 meters, so 1,600 feet. This is minus 425 meters, so uh, pretty, pretty good ascent over 20 miles. And. Uh, so, anyway, so that's what's going on here. Now, is this the Bethany? So it says, uh, where was I at? 28. This took place at Bethany beyond the Jordan. So there's this additional uh, descriptor added. So that means he's saying it's not this Bethany. John knows of this Bethany. He would have just said, yeah, it's Bethany. Um, but this is a different Bethany. So back in when Jesus was uh, walking the earth and, and John the Baptist was walking the earth, there was a town here called Bethany. And what I will say is, is that, um, so this is where they crossed the Jordan River and came into the land, and, and they went up these ascents to take the, the land. So, for example, they went up the ascent over here to take the eye. They went up the ascent over here um, to come into the the main part of the hill country. Um, so that would have been Joshua. Um, there's that place where they stack the rocks as they cross the Jordan River, right? Um, that's actually probably pretty close to where John the Baptist was. Right down here is Jericho, and a very fruitful place. A lot of, I mean, that's where a lot of agriculture comes from today. Uh, Jericho dates are the best in the world. They're really good. Um, anyway, so John was down here on the Jordan River, baptizing. And there was probably, in that day, a little city called Bethany. That's where it was. But, what I can say is that nobody knows exactly where it is, because usually, what happens is, in archaeology, if you go to this land, um, you'll see, you'll be out in uh, kind of a plainish area. It might be hill country, but it's still kind of plainish. And you'll see a, a mound. You don't know if that mound is a geological uprising, or if it's an ancient city 
because what would happen is they build on top of a city. So a city would be built, it would come and go maybe over 100 to 200 years. Another 100 years later, somebody come in, they would use the materials as well as bring in new materials to rebuild the city. And then what happens is, is you end up getting a hill. And they call these tells because they go onto these hills and they start digging down. And what happens is if you dig down, you go through layers of history. And you can determine a lot about the people group. So you don't know if it's actually just a geological formation or a tell, a hill. And uh, there is no tell here for Bethany. And probably the reason why is because it's in the Jordan River Valley, it was probably repeatedly washed out. So nobody knows where this cliff, where this Bethany was. But we know that it's not this Bethany over here because it's still here today. And there's a different description of that. Uh, Dave, I don't want to move on until I hear from you exactly. Is Elijah the prophet? Uh, no, Elijah is not the prophet. Okay. So Elijah is different. Because uh, they're asking because they him, are you Elijah? Exactly. Right, they're asking, are you Elijah, who was a prophet? Right, um, but Elijah is different than the prophet. Well, who's the prophet? The prophet is the one that Moses said would come from among the people um, that would be like Moses. That would that the people were supposed to follow. So, in being like Moses, that means that he would probably be a prophet, a priest, and a king. Oh, all three. Okay. Right. So, is it Jesus then? Right. Okay. So that's what the prophet is another name for Messiah. Okay, thank you. Yeah. So, so if that was the case, then, then the, who was the Christ that they were looking for if they were looking for, a, they were considering the prophet the Messiah? Well, the, they weren't strictly interchangeable. I, so, I, I didn't think so. But no, no. So the word Messiah, anointed, actually comes out of Samuel. Right? So when we looked at Samuel in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, there is a promise of uh, an eternal king. Right? And that um, this king will come from the line of David and will have an eternal kingdom. So the prophet is coming through uh, Nathan to David, and David gets this message from God that um, he will build uh, a house for the name of God. And we understand that that happened both in his descendant Solomon. Solomon built a temple, right? But Christ built the eternal temple. And Christ entered into the eternal temple and went to the eternal mercy seat and offered one sacrifice once for all. So when we get to Hebrews, we see this typology that was realized in Solomon and uh, subsequent human kings realized in the, the true Messiah. Mm -hmm. Right. So what you see in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is um, the prophecy and promise of Messiah the eternal king. What you see in Deuteronomy 8.17 is the same person, but a different understanding from Jewish um, rabbinic teaching. Right? So the rabbis are trying to figure out, okay, we got this promise to David, and it's about a king, and oh, that could be Solomon, or it could be... They didn't quite get... Uh, they, they had this expectation of one who would be eternal king, so that means he couldn't be like Solomon, because Solomon's dead, Right? But uh, they didn't quite understand how you could actually have an eternal king that was human. And then there's this prophet, and he's like Moses, right? He's a, he's a prophet, and he's a priest, um, and he has this leadership role among the people. And so they considered them like two people with the same kind of nuance. It's like, well, this, this prophet must be an eternal uh, prophet too. So, but they didn't used the same word, they didn't use Messiah. So they, they didn't know who Christ was going to be. And some thought that he would be a political leader and he would establish the Jews as, as the great kingdom on earth and that they would lead all of humanity. Um, 
And so the, the first thing you got to do is you got to overthrow the Romans, right? So they were looking, some were looking for a political leader, some were looking for a religious leader, right? Um, no one was looking for the Christ, the true Christ, the true prophet, the one whom Elijah pointed to and John the Baptist pointed to. Um, so Elijah was never a type of Christ, but um, the one that he says here, the Christ or the prophet, they were a type of Christ. And <coughs> they didn't get when Jesus came into Jerusalem uh, being presented as the king um, that he was that one. One, he, the first thing was he wasn't a Levite. Because David wasn't a Levite. He was from the tribe of Judah. So how could one who was from the tribe of Judah be a priest? First problem. Right? Because um, I could understand he's a king, the Christ, the Messiah, but how can he be uh, a priest? And certainly they understood that Jesus spoke prophetically. So they would have said, yeah, he could be a prophet. A prophet, but not the prophet. Right? That makes sense? So that's why the three are listed there. Um, they didn't know who it was they were supposed to look for. But what John the Baptist says, I'll tell you who to look for. Look for the Lamb of God. Which is another, you don't see the Lamb of God used many places in the Bible. It says uh, on, in verse 29, he says, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's, a, that's an official title. So you probably see it capitalized in your, in your Bible. As if we would capitalize somebody's first name. Right? Um, and that's why a lot of times people think that Christ is a last name. That Jesus' last name was Christ. No, it's not. It's, it's describing who he is. Um, this is descriptive. This Lamb of God is um, one understanding of who Christ is. And so that's, that's what's happening here. Is that John says, no, I'm not any one of those. I'm not Elijah that came back. I'm not... Um, the promised eternal king. I am not the prophet that Moses spoke about. I am the one crying in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord, and pointing to him so that you'll be ready when he comes. That's who John said he was. And he did this down here by the Jordan River. And that's where he was baptizing people. We talked a little bit about baptism last week. Not very good. Um, baptism wasn't really a practice for the Jews. It was a practice for the Gentiles that were um, making a decision to follow the God of the Jews. The Jews already had a ritual cleansing process that they would go through to um, demonstrate outwardly um, their uh, readiness to come into the presence of God when they would go up onto the Temple Mount. And before they would even go onto the Mount, right, let alone to the Temple. And not all of them could go to the Temple. Only they had a court of the men, a court of the women, and then outside of that there was a wall called it the Court of the Gentiles. And so Gentiles could not go in. And they couldn't even get up to the Temple Mount to get to the Court of the Gentiles unless they had gone through the baptism. Because it's baptism was a process that said these were what they call proselytes. These were folks that had um, heard the message of uh, Yahweh and chose to make Yahweh their God. So they were becoming Jews. And they would uh, proselyte, um, would do more than just this baptism process. They would actually get circumcised. They would go through the whole, um, if they were men, they would go through that whole process um, to become Jews. But they weren't Jews. That's got to be really hard. When you dedicate your life to, to the Lord, maybe more so than one who was chosen before you, chosen by birth, being a Jew, and yet you don't have the same privilege and access to God that they do. But that's what John was doing. He was 
um, making a way for people to come to the Lord, both Jew and Gentile. And then when he sees Jesus, let's go ahead and read that, because we're going to run out of time. Because the next day, he saw... Yes? No, Jews Jews could be baptized as well, but it would be more uh, like our baptism, where we're making an outward statement of an inward, uh, we're making a testimony of that which we have embraced. So the Jews weren't required to go through baptism. So they were rededicating themselves. Yeah, it's like a rededication. Okay. It's like. Uh, uh, with water for, or he's baptized with water for the repentance. Right. So for for a uh, for a Gentile, there was an actual cleansing uh, aspect associated with that because they didn't practice the ritual cleansing until they had become a Jew. Right. So in order to even get to the ritual baths, they had to have been cleansed. So a Gentile baptism was a way of preparation to become a Jew, as well as a confession. A witness that um, they were uh, um, that they loved the Lord and were going to follow Him. Now, for a Jew, it would be more a rededication, right? It would be a statement of, "Yes, I want to uh, for you know forsake my sin. I want to repent and follow the Lord." So, um, John the Baptist baptized both, but the practice of baptism. Um, I mean, he could have just sat down with these Jews and said, okay, don't sin anymore. Right, so there was no rededication prior to John the Baptist? Correct. There were no rededications by Jews before John the Baptist? Um, No, there was. What I'm saying is is that baptism wasn't required. It was, although John was baptizing, that baptism was primarily set up for the Gentiles. But I'm sure that there were Jews that said, you know what, I understand what you're saying. And they rededicated their lives. And, uh, but they weren't required to do that. <coughs> um, that would have occurred before uh, John the Baptist as well. So, for example, in the reforms of Josiah, when Josiah discovered the word, and part of his reforms prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Babylonians was to rebuild the ritual baths. That was part of Josiah's reforms. And to read the, the scripture uh, publicly. Right, that's part of the, the reform. So there were those that went through the same kind of rededication prior to John the Baptist. John the Baptist just happened to be a very vocal voice doing that in that day. And the religious leader said, who are you? Why are you doing this? What gives you authority? Was one of the questions they were asking. It's like, we are the religious authorities. What gives you the authority to do this? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And John said, no, no, no. I'm just here, one uh, voice in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. So he would probably turn to those uh, Pharisees, not their emissaries. He was very gentle with the emissaries. But when the Pharisees came to John the Baptist, he said, repent. You're a bunch of brood of vipers, right? Jesus said the same thing. So they had a really harsh word to those that wanted to maintain religious power. Right? Because religion isn't supposed to have a power of rule. It's supposed to have a power to transform lives. It's a practice that we, we do, um, not an administration. And they had made it into a way of you know, having power over people. And so Jesus didn't have anything good to say about them, neither did John the Baptist. In fact, John the Baptist offended um, Herod uh, and ended up getting his head chopped off because of it. Because he said, you know, you you took your brother's wife. That's wrong. He was a man of integrity. Um, so that's who John the Baptist was. And when the Lamb of God, when Christ actually comes before him, he points him out. Yeah. Could you just tell me why uh, Why does Matthew 11, or, yeah, it's 11, 11. Why does it say that if you, if you believe... He is Elijah who is to come. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Not always so. Okay, so Jesus is saying, this is Elijah, right? It says, truly, truly, or truly I say to you, among those born of women, 
there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Oh. Mm-hmm. Back up in there, so it's not 11-11. Um, 13. 13, here we go. Um, and he goes, let me read on. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. One of the questions is, what do we mean by that? Um, if you read chapter tw- or verse 12, it says, uh, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. So um, there is a, a presentation of God's kingdom that is being distorted and twisted and turned. And he goes on, he says, For all the peoples, uh, and all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. So that's your question. So if Jesus is saying that John was Elijah, then who was John? John said, no, I'm not Elijah. Right? So what was the role of Elijah? The prophet. And is Jesus saying that John fulfilled the role of Elijah the prophet, or that he was physically Elijah the prophet? So that would be the question. So if we read it literally, it would mean that he was physically Elijah, that Elijah returned. Right? <clears throat> You're shaking your head. Yeah, that's what confuses me. Uh, or is Jesus or speaking figuratively? And I would suggest that Jesus is speaking figuratively. Yeah, because he starts it with, and if you care to accept it. Right. So, so when you read so the, the like, context, and that's why I read some, through some of the context, um, it's really setting up what John the Baptist was doing, what his role was. And in fact, he suffered and died like the prophets before him. But I can't... Uh, say with absolute certainty that you can't read this literally. Uh, so, saying John himself is Elijah. Right. So if you just take it at one little snapshot, um, that would sound like that Elijah is, is uh, resurrected or um, he never died, so he's reappeared on earth, and that would be John. That would be one way of interpreting. And I would suggest that the context says that no, he has the same role. He is Elijah who is to come. I mean, the whole, act, I mean, truthfully, the was. whole thing is a little bit confusing. Mine says was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. was. Oh, was. yours says was? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, I think that's not what I'm confusing. So, uh, the people were, were looking people were looking for the signs of Messiah. And one of the signs of Messiah would be that there would be uh, a messenger that would come before him to prepare the way. And so that's, that's this passage in um, uh, Matthew is about uh, John being that messenger the one who is to prepare the way. So that would have been the passage out of Malachi um, uh, 3.1 says, uh, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare uh, your way before you. So that's speaking of the coming of Messiah and that there would be one who would come before the herald um, to announce. Now, if you know Jewish um, feasts and the Jewish calendar, anybody know what the first day of the Jewish calendar is? Karen and I were married on this day. Do you? It's uh, it's the Jewish New Year. It's also sometimes called the Heralding of Messiah or the the Festival of Trumpets. Because it's the announcement that Messiah is coming. And then what follows that are what they call the Days of Awe. And it's a time of ten days of repentance that the people are supposed to prepare their heart because they heard the message, they heard the trumpet. They know that Christ is coming and that they are to prepare their heart through repentance. And that on the tenth day, so Rosh Hashanah is the first day, ten days of awe, the tenth day is Yom Kippur, day of atonement. And on that day, the high priest enters into the temple and makes atonement for the sons of the people. Right? 
And then what follows that is the festival of booths. So after uh, atonement comes festival of booths, which is a celebration of God's provision for his people. Right? And so you you see the whole type of Christ in the in the whole calendar of the Jews. That's what it's about. So if Christ is coming and the people are to prepare their heart, that's who John the Baptist is. He's the trumpeter. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Um, and what Jesus is saying in this passage is, if you know your scripture and you've read the prophets, you should know that this is the one who has this role. This is the one that it was prophesied about in Malachi. And that's why I say it's, it's, it's not that John is Elijah incarnate, but rather the, the, the function of, or I don't want to use the spirit of Elijah, because that could be misconstrued too. But what Elijah was supposed to do, that's what John the Baptist is doing. Elijah did it too. And it, it kind of seems to me that you know, the same way the Pharisees came to Jesus or came to John and said, Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Right. It's describing these prophetic Correct. words that were spoken all through the Old Testament. Right. And in the same way, the descriptors of who John the Baptist is is Elijah right. one. Well, and they were they were asking if he was the one that was either the announcer or the one to, to uh, be announced, right, or the, the object of the announcement. Um, and he was saying, no, I'm not the object of the announcement. And in the strict sense, I'm not Elijah or the prophet either, because the prophet is also uh, talking about the object of the announcement. Um, however, he was a prophetic voice. Jesus said, you know, among, among men, there isn't anyone greater than John. He had the perfect message. Um, and it cost him his life. Okay? Uh, it cost Jesus his life as well. Uh, because people didn't want to hear the message. But, um, so that's, what I, that's how I would answer that. And I don't know that that's a satisfactory answer. Um, I don't, uh, John says himself, he wasn't Elijah incarnate. So I have to accept that John would have known if he was Elijah. So that would make him a liar. Make him a liar if, if he knew that that's who he was and didn't declare it. So I don't know if that's satisfactory. It's um, not. So what I'll do, since that's not satisfactory, because we're out of time, what I'll do is I'll do my research um, to bring back the preponderance of opinion. So what most people, uh, because I'm sure there are some that would disagree. And I will bring that forward next week uh, because, you know, I didn't get a satisfactory response. So I'll I'll do a better job next week. Um, And and it may still be unsatisfactory. There are things in the Bible that we can't always agree with or understand. Uh, It doesn't make them true. So, so I'll do my best next week on that. Um, we're, we're getting there. You rock, man. Let's go ahead and close the prayer. Lord, uh, thank you for uh, the challenges of your work, and that uh, you know, as we struggle with um, how uh, those that have come before us um, have endeavored to preserve and to interpret for us. Lord, we understand that um, human uh, humans will always fail and that the only true revelation of you is, is your son himself and that we desire that. That's what we desire, Lord, is to know you um, as a personal experience and not uh, just a head knowledge, Lord, Lord, that it would be a, a heart knowledge. And that's, that's our desire. And Lord, we know that You've told us if we ask, you'll answer. If we seek, you'll find. And that, Lord, that you delight in uh, in our struggles to be more intimate with you. And, Lord, we just ask that you continue to choose us and that it's not any merit of our own that uh, makes us attractive to you, Lord, but uh, you're who you are and your love for us that uh, is so uh, amazing. And, Lord, we thank you for that. 
Lord, we ask that you would protect us as we go from here this week, that you would keep us from both the spiritual forces that would attack our minds and our hearts and the physical forces that would attack our bodies, Lord. We just ask that you protect us, that you provide for us as we go from here, Lord. It's a scary world. And there's, uh, we need your provision. We need your sustenance. And Lord, uh, we thank you so much for who you are and your service to us and that which we're celebrating uh, here in Easter in just a few weeks. And Lord, we thank you for all of this. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.